Welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Welcome, friends. Thank you for joining us today. We're here today with Eli Mitchell Larson, who is a researcher at the Environmental Change Institute at the University of Oxford. A former impact investor and social entrepreneur, Eli's recent work focuses on carbon capture and storage, standards for credible carbon offsetting, and pathways to decarbonize fossil fuels. Eli, welcome. That's such a mouthful. Um, <laughs> we, I mean, obviously, we are very keen on these subjects. Um, break that down a little bit. What are you studying at Oxford? Sure. So I'm part of the one plus one MBA program currently at Oxford, which means I did an MSc in environmental change and management. And I focus specifically, uh, sorry, before not then transitioning to my MBA. So I work primarily on questions about uh, permanent geological storage of carbon and negative emissions and really what the role those actions will play in achieving net zero, net zero carbon emissions. So Basically, I'm, I would say I'm an environmental generalist who's been sucked into the quagmire, or I shouldn't say quagmire, the interesting world of carbon removal, um, CO2 offsetting, and, and these, these questions that we know we need to answer if we want to make uh, travel carbon neutral and other act- activities we do as well. Mm-hmm. I got sucked in too. I mean, I also feel like it's kind of a quagmire. So we met through David Hone, who's somebody that I met on a trip in Antarctica, and he's been such a mentor and advisor to me. I love to kind of start these conversations with a reflection on how people came together, because I think one of the central principles of of the Tomorrow's Air effort is that we can start a global collective, beginning with the relationships we all already have, that everything we need is kind of right at our fingertips. And so when David put me in touch with you. I was um, so thrilled. But tell me how you met David and let's do our six degrees of separation. Sure. I guess it was only one in this case. Which is <laughs> it great. was just one, right? So, yeah. David Hone is a really interesting guy. He's, uh, as the listeners may know, the chief climate change advisor for Shell. Um, he has his own blog, which I highly recommend. It's pretty interesting. And it's it's interesting to learn from someone who's sort of in the thick of it. They're, they're a part of the oil and gas industry, which you know many people would sort of bristle at or be surprised. Wow, you know, like how could somebody in that industry that has such a tortured relationship with the issue of climate change, you know, have something interesting to offer? But David is quite an independent voice. He's he's got a book on Amazon. He's he's a really well respected um, thought leader on on these questions. And I met him because he spoke at some conferences at Oxford, and also um, he's participated in thinking through some of these questions about how are we going to decarbonize fossil fuels? It sounds like an oxymoron, right? How would you decarbonize a fuel that is made up of carbon? But the idea with that phrase is to figure out, you know, how could we mitigate the climate impact, eliminate the climate impact of fossil fuels, likely with permanent storage of carbon, which could be geological, it could be a nature-based solutions, et cetera, but primarily geological. So David is, he, he shares that passion. He wants to understand how we can get to net zero, how, how we can really use all the technologies at our disposal. So I've really enjoyed my conversations with him, one of which we got talking about his uh, times, exactly, visiting Antarctica and, and some of these sort of extreme travel cruises where he's been a speaker and an, and an organizer. And I, I had also been to Antarctica as well. So we got talking and then he told me about Tomorrow's Air and this uh, initiative to find a way to make travel a bit 
friendlier to the environment. Yeah. So one thing that I always struck me about David was his willingness to sort of educate somebody brand new to the topic and be able to speak in very, you know, lay person's terms. And I find it fascinating how easy it is for people to dismiss what comes from somebody just because they work for a company like Shell. And it seems like there's so little trust in the motivations of an oil company that anything that comes out of an oil company, certain categories of people are just going to dismiss and say, well, you can't trust that because the oil companies are just trying to figure out how to make themselves look better. I feel like this is something in this fight for net zero that we have to let go of. Like we have to figure out a way to work with industrial energy partners. Like we can't get to net zero without transforming those sectors as well. And there's so much intelligence there. I had to go through that journey myself because, you know, two years ago, I, I've been, you know, I've been, a, I would say, a advocate and, ev- and an evangelist for fighting climate change my whole career. And even going back to my childhood, I mean, this is the most important, single most important issue we face as a species. To me, you know, also related issues like biodiversity and just environmental destruction. This is sort of my mission in life is to stop these things. And so unsurprisingly, the voices I've mostly heard and the circles I've run in have been environmentalists. And I think, or or rather sort of a subset of environmentalists. And I think there is the sort of distrust of the fossil fuel industry is warranted to the extent that many of these companies participated in denying climate science for decades, right? But that does that doesn't mean that uh, efforts they're making now to to go net zero and also individual members of those companies. You have to remember these companies are you know seventy eighty thousand person organizations. Mm-hmm. They're almost like little mini countries, and so there's a huge diversity of views and perspectives even within them. And I think your point precisely, which is you know now that we've now that we've seen the IPCC one point five report, we have a much clearer sense of what we have to do to achieve net zero to limit global warming below one point five degrees. We know now that it can't all be done by just reducing emissions and planting trees. We also are going to need carbon capture and storage. We're going to need permanent storage of CO2 that otherwise would have hit the atmosphere and certain activities like flying, uh, marine shipping, cement and steel production. We don't really have an instantaneous means of decarbonizing yet. And so we're going to be using fossil fuels for some time. And so I, I, I totally agree that we have to at least be open to hearing the solutions that are coming from companies that historically would be unlikely allies in the, in the fight to stop climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I grew up in Alaska. My dad was a petroleum geologist. He ended up spending most of his time in, in science and in studying geology. But I, I often say I come from a long line of land rapers. <laughs> and there's so much history in my family, my father, my grandfather, people who were searching for fossil fuels. And I appreciate the sort of how you can be an environmentalist and also be a petroleum geologist looking for oil that you want to extract. Those two things can live together. And now we need to engage, you know, reach across the fence. I feel like there's just this enormous opportunity for us to figure out how to work with those kinds of people and those kinds of companies yeah, it reminds me of an experience I had last summer. I was doing my dissertation research in Norway, which is obviously a heavy petroleum dependent state. Mm-hmm. And I was interviewing all these different members of government and industry, et cetera, to understand their views on carbon capture and storage and how they sort of thought the 
Norwegian fossil carbon resources could be decarbonized. And it was mm-hmm. interesting to hear all these people that were, you know, in their 50s or 60s or, or even older who had been in the industry. In the 1970s or 80s, if you majored in geology, what were your options? You could be an academic or you could work in the oil and gas industry. And, you know, we could say that maybe by the late 80s, that was when we started to know about climate change and what fossil fuels were doing, but it was a limited subset of people. There were some kind of crazy conspiracies there, right? Where Exxon and others actually knew that information and and withheld it. But nevertheless, most people were just joining these companies because it was a great job and they were contributing to economic growth and there was nothing wrong with it. So if you think about these people that began their careers that way and have a wealth of knowledge and expertise, I mean, the oil and gas industry moves like a volume of fluid, which is mostly water every day or, you know, that's a, that's massive in comparison to how much CO2 we need to manage. In other words, these are companies that know how to manage large volumes of fluids and, and, and why not uh, harness that expertise to manage CO2? Because that's really what we have to start thinking about it as. It's managing CO2. It's managing the, the stocks and flows of the substance, which is a huge issue. <laughs> and uh, I think that's, that's part of it is just recognizing that we, we shouldn't demonize people for certain earlier career choices, we should certainly demonize companies for lying, but right. we have to sort of put certain things behind us and, and decide how we're going to move forward. That's exactly it. Tell me, so you mentioned Norway. I've been to Norway a couple of times. It's so beautiful and sparsely populated. And I know you also have done a lot of traveling yourself. Say a little bit about some of your, some of your global travels. Yeah. So I, uh, when I first heard about Tomorrow's Era, I was so excited because I thought, you know, this is the first kind of concerted effort I've seen to build a movement around making travel climate neutral. And that was sort of something I came to really slowly because, yeah, I think travel has been a huge part of my life. I hadn't traveled very much up until I got to university, but I ended up joining a singing group called the Whiff and Poofs. And we go back to that. Sorry, this is going to be the title of our show. The (laughs) Whiff and Poofs. Oh, yes. The Whiff and Poofs. It's a, it's an uh, acapella group. So it's basically a, a bunch of people joining together and singing um, sort of acapella, in other words, no instruments, arrangements, pop songs, old songs, et cetera. But this particular group uh, has been around since uh, 1909. So it's got quite a history. It's got a lot of uh, relationships and connections around the world. And the sort of uh, centerpiece of the experience was we actually went on this massive trip. It was a three-month world tour where we actually, over the course of six months, we, we visited all seven continents. We sang, I should say, on all seven continents over the course of a year. We also had the opportunity to sing for uh, President Obama, um, some other heads of state, like in Madagascar and really bizarre places. So it was just an incredible experience. I was so lucky and fortunate, and it was just so bizarre that I got to tra- basically travel the world by singing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, was a, it was a shocking experience where they brought us into a room and sort of arrayed us for a photo. And then at the last minute, they asked those of us in the center to move aside and make room for the president and the first lady. And until that point, we didn't even know they were going to come into the room. So it was a, it was a really powerful moment and yeah, a great experience. Incredible. I also, so were you wearing suits? Were you like, how? Yeah, we had, we we wore. I'm such an Obama fan. I've got to get deeper into this a little bit. Yeah, we wore these, uh, well, we wore basically white tie and tails, which is sort of a early 20th Mm -hmm. century satire, I suppose. But um, we also wore those same white tie and tail outfits when we did our trip to Antarctica. And we were on the expedition, the expedition, I think it's called, is the cruise, the, Mm -hmm. the company. And we went ashore and 
sang mm-hmm. a few songs. And then we noticed there was this penguin highway, these penguins no. walking <laughs> up and down this hill. So we had basically planned ahead for this and we took off our outerwear, which was, you know, to keep us mm-hmm. warm in the very cold uh, mm-hmm. Antarctic climate. And we lined up behind the penguins and took this photo op of us in our tuxedos with the penguins in the foreground. So that was probably our, our crowning achievement in terms of a photo op. I'm stunned, speechless by that. I love it so much. I'm going to um, <laughs> chase you down for the photo. You know, just being exposed to such amazing opportunities to travel. It's something that, you know, not a lot of people have the chance to do. And it was such a bizarre sort of confluence of getting to sing and travel, et cetera. And, and I think what happens later on, and you've mentioned this in our previous conversation is, you know, once you start to learn about the environmental impact of travel, particularly long distance mm-hmm. or extreme travel or all of these trips, it's really surprising and, and shocking. And it really gives you cause for pause. And it's, I think we've seen that in the public conversation about flying and, and travel the attitudes have really shifted. And so that's why Mm -hmm. I think it's an important moment to think about how can we harness the positive elements of travel, getting to see amazing places, meet interesting people, exchange cultures, et cetera, and use that to actually make a difference and actually eliminate, leave the world better than we found it. So not just eliminate the CO2 emissions associated with travel, but actually remove them or uh, make our travel net negative. That would be sort of an aspirational target, I think. Yeah, the conflict between recognizing all the benefits, not to mention the money that travel can bring to destinations. I mean, we're now in this in this corona moment where people are not traveling. There's so much concern for for places that are protected because travelers go there. I mean, it travel is such I think travel is a lot actually like oil. It's it's such a um knife edge. It can be so so great. It can bring so many benefits and it can also, if it's not managed well, be so detrimental. So yes, the notion that we, that we need to clean up all the, you know, there's, there's not just the um, damage that we do currently. There's also all this damage that we've unwittingly done, you know, this notion of which David really, you know, helped me start to understand that, that there's, carbon in stock, that the atmosphere is finite, that that it's full, and that travel has been contributing over these many years. And you know, when the um, Microsoft announcement came out and Microsoft was saying, we want to clean up all the carbon that we've emitted since our company was founded in 1975, I was like, yes, that's actually, this is kind of, you know, I hadn't thought of tomorrow's air in that, in that stark term, but I was like, this is actually kind of what we're after. We're, we want to clean up what we've put into the atmosphere that continues to warm our planet for generations, even if we stopped everything right now. There's a lot to unpack there. That's really interesting. I think um, the main insight that I think you've drawn out that's really powerful is just the, the nature of CO2 as a cumulative pollutant. In other words, a substance that once it's released, effectively persists forever, right? There's very slow geological processes that are that draw it down and there's other geological processes that reintroduce it but largely speaking all of the co2 that we've emitted since the you know 1850s or or whatever is still in the system whether it's in the oceans or the atmosphere it's still it's still in circulation and that's pretty scary to think about that you know our the first flight that our grandparents ever took or you know the first car that was ever driven i mean the co2 from that is still up there as far as whether the atmosphere is full i mean Basically, we've we've reached 1.2 degrees Celsius of warming, right above the pre-industrial baseline. So that's like two point something degrees Fahrenheit. 
and we're trying to keep warming below 1.5. So to the extent that we're happy, I mean, obviously we're not all happy, even 1.5 degrees of warming can be really detrimental. It can, you know, destroy low-lying small island nations, et cetera. But, you know, speaking very roughly, to the extent that we're roughly happy as a species to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, we haven't gotten there yet, right? We're still under 1.5 degrees. So the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere isn't necessarily too much, right? It's it's enough to cause 1.2 degrees of warming and no more. Now, there is, there, there is a chance, uh, I think a very small chance, that we've already passed some kind of uh, reinforcing feedback that mm-hmm. will continue to warm uh, by virtue of releasing, I don't know, methane clathrate. So there's all kinds of ideas around that. But I think the general consensus is, is that we haven't hit that yet. And so um, something like committing to removing all the CO2 you've ever emitted, I think, is really valuable conceptually. But actually, until we get to 1.5 degrees, we've still got some room left, so to speak. And we, I think we have to be realistic about that, that you know, we haven't reached net zero yet. And so we are going to continue to add CO2 to the atmosphere. And that's where this idea of carbon budgets come in, comes in. The idea that there's a finite amount of CO2 left, a budget that we can spend until we reach 1.5 degrees. And there's an additional budget that'll take us to two degrees. We don't know those budgets with absolute precision, but we have a pretty good sense of it. And so I like to think of it as how are we going to spend that budget before we've basically run out of, of, of the opportunity to use the atmosphere as a place to put CO2. And I, so the, the priority is getting to net zero emissions so that we're not adding any more. Then we can talk about, you know, how much less CO2 we want than that, than that stable level. But I mm-hmm. think the priority is just doing everything we can to get to net zero. Eli, I love how, you know, when you speak, it's simple and clear to me. Let's hear about carbon offsetting. In travel, this has been a very big part of the conversation, particularly in the adventure travel community where I come from, which is really the the heart of adventure travel is companies that are passion-driven, that truly do care. These small businesses are putting it all on the line to try and be as helpful as they can to the communities and the environment. And carbon offsetting has been, our industry has been leaders in offsetting, and we're proud of that. And now we have this conversation coming around offsetting, around removal. Can you sort of break that down a little bit? What's the difference between offsetting and removal and where are the the fine distinctions there? Yeah, no, let's dive into that. I, I, I did have one question though, which was just sort of for you, Christina, observing adventure travel, when do you think people started basically packaging offsets with these sort of elite travel opportunities? Like when did that kind of, when did you start to see that as a common practice? I'm just curious. Well, yeah, a few companies have been doing it for a while. A few leaders, Natural Habitat Adventures is one company that was carbon neutral beginning in 2007. They were in the vanguard. At our last um, conference at our Climate Action Leadership Studio in Sweden, we had a session in which a, a French company was explaining their journey to offsetting and how they got to a point where they were bundling the, the offsetting within the trip price and sharing that even though it cost more, their travelers were grateful. I would say it's just, it's recent. It's like the past it's couple really of years. Up. Yeah. And now it's, now we're, the Adventure Travel Trade Association is working on a program also to enable offsetting for smaller companies, we've got a bulk purchase going. And so we're, we're encouraging companies to start doing that on behalf of their travelers because travelers have 
not trusted offsets. It, you know, it was like travelers aren't, aren't understanding offsets and aren't doing it. And so we're going to do it for them. And then we're going to have this um, branding possibility for our company. We'll be able to show how values driven we are and that's, and consumers want that. So that's actually terrific. So I, you know, I don't want to discourage offsetting. I'm a fan of offsetting and I'm a fan of removal. And I feel like we're introducing this. There's so much education and inspiration that has to be done um, around removal it, and, and how to build that narrative with a community that's so, that has put so much heart and soul into offsetting. It's like that, all that is good. And not to diminish the value of that, but also kind of layer this new dimension in there. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's offsetting is such a thorny topic. It's such a controversial topic. Every few months, I reread uh, the journalist George Mambio's article on offsetting, where he famously compared carbon offsetting to the medieval Catholic practice of selling indulgences, right? Where you could basically buy your way out of sinning. And he did a pretty good job. You know, this was over almost 15 years ago now, basically tearing down the concept of carbon offsetting and just saying, you know, this is an abs- this is a moral hazard. It's just a, oh, an excuse to keep emitting. The projects aren't doing anything, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of his criticisms still hold and are still valid. Many others have been, I think, well addressed. But I think it's important like, to kind of see that harsh criticism and ask yourself, okay, what actually is offsetting? Why do we need it? So I think we'll start there maybe and just say, well, you hear about this term net zero. Everybody's talking about net zero emissions. Well, think about what that means, right? It's net because emissions are still going to be going into the atmosphere. Even once you've achieved net zero, whether it's for your own personal life, your own personal travel, whether it's your company, whether it's your country, or whether it's the whole world, the meaning of net zero means however many units of CO2 you're emitting into the atmosphere, an equal and opposite amount of, of, of units of CO2 is being stored, right? And that's what net zero means. And so as long as there are people who are not eliminating their emissions and who are paying someone else to remove emissions or reduce emissions, that's an offset. So there's nothing, we've already agreed as a species and as a global culture that the idea of offsetting makes perfect sense. If it can be done right, it totally makes sense to pay someone else to do something if you yourself can't do it or if it's cheaper for that other person to do it. So that's that's fine. I think the idea of, re, and, and that that's, that gets to the fact that CO2 is not just a long-lived pollutant, it's a well-mixed pollutant, right? As soon as CO2 is emitted in Chile, within a few months or, or whatever, it's well-mixed into the atmosphere. And, you know, you wouldn't be able to isotopically trace exactly the source of something necessarily. Like it's it one big storage space, the atmosphere. So your point about carbon removal. So when we think about offsetting, there's two ways to offset, right? You're, you're, you yourself, the person buying the offset, are continuing to emit. But you can pay someone else to do one of two things. You can pay them to reduce their emissions. So they're, they're emitting some CO2 and, and they're going to reduce them by some means and you're going to pay them to do that. Or you can pay them to suck CO2 directly out of the atmosphere. And actually, so that's the first is called emissions reduction and the second is called carbon removal. And they're both types of offsetting. So carbon removal is really just a form of offsetting. It, it's another way to offset. And it has certain characteristics that make it different from emissions reduction. But from the standpoint of the atmosphere, if a ton of CO2 is being reduced, in other words, if, if you've paid someone and they've successfully avoided emitting that one ton of CO2, or if you've paid somebody to suck a ton of CO2 out of the air, those have exactly the same impact for now 
on the climate system. And that's a really, really kind of tricky point, I think, but it's an important one to remember. Mm -hmm. And I think we also get uh, sort of mired in the natural solutions versus technological solutions or natural, uh, naturally enhanced, technologically enhanced natural solutions. Mm -hmm. There seems to be, as I have, I mean, I'm an educated person, but I'm not a scientist. And I've been approaching all this from a very kind of a lay person's desire to, to try and use, use, use whatever years I have left meaningfully. And so Mm, my, my run into this has been so murky. And then to, to see that there's so much infighting around different types of solutions that almost you kind of like get bounced off, (laughs) off the whole topic because people are kind of debating this one versus that one and the benefits of this versus that. And I, I think that it seems, and I'm asking you to kind of validate this. It seems to me that those debates are because people are trying to secure funding or legislation to support a particular thing. But, but the underlying reality at this point, from what I can understand in that IPCC report, is that there's not a scenario in which we're not using some technology to be net zero by 2050. So we're going to need some of the technical solutions and we're going to need um, to enhance our use of the natural systems. Do I have that? Is that absolutely. right? That's, a, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, the extent of reforestation and uh, improving soil carbon through improved agricultural practices, et cetera, that we need to do both to secure biodiversity and also to achieve net zero is massive. And as well, the scale by which we need to reduce industrial emissions, some of it by by capturing the carbon and geologically storing it, some of it through energy efficiency, some of it through renewables, that's also massive. And the extent to which we eventually will need to remove carbon directly from the air, both mediated by biological allies like trees and uh, soil microbes, and through actual hard tech, you know, direct air capture is massive. So all of those things are massive. I think the question is, though, what's the role for offsets? Because, well, offsets can be both in a like legal compliance regime or voluntary. I think today we're mostly talking about voluntary. We're mostly talking about, you know, someone who went on a trip or a business that has emissions that it doesn't see any way it can reduce. How do they assuage their guilt or feel or have a way to feel positive, really, by paying for an offset. So it's, it's in the voluntary carbon market. And the trick with the voluntary carbon market is that like we shouldn't, we shouldn't confuse the fact that we need all of those solutions I just described. We, we shouldn't let that make us think that all offsets are created equal. Sadly, they are not. And that's been a big problem. That's, I think, why a lot of people have a very negative impression of offsets, because maybe they you know, bought a flight from some large US airline. And at the last minute in checkout, they had an option to little, click a little box and say, do you want to offset all the CO2 for $2? And they said, sure. They just clicked it. And you know, what is that? Like $2 is maybe 1% or 2% of the ticket costs. It just seems so cheap. It seems too good to be true. And I think people have also sort of heard uh, indirectly or directly about you know examples of carbon projects that were meant to generate offsets that didn't do anything, right? That the project failed. The trees never grew. Uh, the ac- action that was taken was later reversed. I mean, there's just a lot of trust involved. And I think the level of trust is very low because it's a, it has been a bit of a wild west. There's been different, so many different players doing these projects. So w- although we need all of these technologies, we have to be really 
uh, aware of what we're paying for when we're buying an offset and how do we sort of pick the best offsets really. And unfortunately, that that isn't yet sort of an off-the-shelf, super easy thing to do. And that's something that I think I am trying to work towards and others as well is to try to make those definitions more precise and hopefully build a framework that that others, perhaps uh, tomorrow's air, can build sort of criteria around to make it clear to someone who, as you say, doesn't have the time or the interest to go into the details of what makes a good offset, what makes a bad offset, to be able to trust a brand and actually trust that what they're paying for is really going to stop climate change. I think 20 years ago, I I would probably be less strict about the quality of the offset because we had more time. But with each passing year, we have less time. And so the margin of error is getting smaller. I don't think any of us can afford to pay for offsets and think that we've done our, our job and eliminated the impact of those emissions only to have that not turn out to be true. I mean, generally speaking, when we're, when we're trying to reduce emissions, we try to do the cheapest things first, right? So we try to do the low-hanging fruit while we can, and that way our, our dollars go farther and we make faster progress toward combating climate change and we go to the more expensive stuff later. And I think the part that I really like about Climeworks, and, and remember that not all direct care, air capture does end with permanent storage. I think you have to separate the, the way that the project captures carbon out of the air or from whatever source and, and what it does with that carbon later on. Because, you know, just as likely the application might be pumping that CO2 into a greenhouse to help mm-hmm. uh, increase plant growth, right? So not it's, it's not a guarantee that they're geologically storing it. So you have to kind of understand that. And I think in some cases they are, which is exciting. But, you know, the, the key there is that is, is the storage. It's not so much the capture. It's the fact that once we've obtained some CO2 that we really don't want to go into the atmosphere, we're, we have to put it somewhere. And we have a choice of where we put it. And one of the things we can do with it is store it permanently in the, in the Earth's geology, which is something that we know is possible because over the, over the centuries, when we, when we dig for oil and gas, we occasionally come across pockets of fossil CO2 that was just sort of chilling out in some sort of deep uh, underground reservoir under a cap rock kind of waiting to be released. In other words, it, it had been able to persist there for millennia, millions and millions and millions of years until we disturbed it. And so, whereas, you know, something like hydrogen, we don't see in the earth's crust because it's, you know, it, it can leak out. It's a much smaller molecule. They're just, it, they're, there's no sort of trapping process. So we know that CO2 can be stored for effectively infinite timescales in the earth's geology. And so we need to start putting it there. The central principle that I've been working on with my supervisor, uh, Professor Miles Allen at the University of Oxford, is this idea of uh, progressive es- escalating geological storage. So in other words, once we reach net zero, however much carbon we're taking out of the ground, we had better be putting exactly that much, if not more carbon back into the ground, right? What comes out must go back. That's, that's sort of the obvious end state that we're going towards. And right now, of course, what percentage of all the CO2 or carbon that we dig up are we burying? Well, pretty much none, right? 0.01% or something. So how do we get from 0.01% to 100%? Well, that basically means every year we increase the percentage of the fossil carbon that we've dug up that we store back in the geology. But whether that CO2 that you store came from a Climeworks direct air capture unit or whether you just captured it out of the smokestack of a cement plant does not matter. And therefore, because we need to do CO2 storage at such massive volumes, we need to scale up so quickly. We really need to focus on the latter. We need to focus on the low-hanging fruit the same way we did with renewables, with energy efficiency. 
And I think that's something that I don't think people have quite grasped is the need to uh, store carbon as distinct from the need to remove carbon. Yes. Like, so as we think about our kind of education campaign and messaging, that's one of the points that we can start to bring more to the forefront of the conversation. The key thing, I think, is the permanent storage. I think that's a really important piece to harp on. And that's maybe where we can get some fun um, messaging with art and songs, et cetera, that can kind of make clear in a more accessible way, just that it's about the end state of the CO2. It's about what happens to it. Mm-hmm. If it reaches the atmosphere, it's going to be there basically forever. So the alternative is capturing it somehow and storing it forever. And we have to be careful about how we store it, but we actually have the technology to do that. We know how to do that. We know how to monitor that to make sure that it stays there. I want to build on this a little bit, but I want to go first uh, back to where you grew up. I think you're from Maine. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And your dad was in construction. Yeah. So uh, what I hear in you is like this very practical, like back to basic sort of comprehension of what needs to be done that seems like I can, I can visualize a dad who's in construction sort of influencing some of this thinking. Yeah. What was it like in Maine and what's your dad's name and what's he doing now? And what does he think about what you're into? Because he probably uses a lot of cement. Uh, yeah. So my, my dad's name is Chris and he's had a pretty varied career. He's worked in real estate development. He's had some startups where he did CNC machining, uh, all kinds of things. But what he's been doing lately is um, basically home energy audits and retrofits. So it's basically it's basically the front lines of combating climate change in the sense that mm-hmm. it is the cheapest thing you can do to reduce your emissions, which is insulating your house. It's like the last mile. Yeah. And so um, I think that did kind of rub off on me is just, you know, a sort of rational, practical approach to solving problems. And, you know, people in Maine spend a lot of money on fuel oil. Believe it or not, that's how people still heat their homes. And, you know, growing up, we had that as well. We also, you know, lived in a sort of wooded area. So we cut trees and 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 heated with wood as well. But I think, yeah, so, so maybe that's another thing that you get when you grow up in Maine is you're, you're a bit more cognizant of your energy use because you're paying a lot for this stuff and you're trying to keep warm in the middle of the winter. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's something you definitely think about. And so you kind of, it, it was less of a leap for me maybe to think about these questions of where energy comes from and where these materials come from. And yeah, kind of getting a bit of the emotion out of it, right? Like, like uh, it's obviously, it's attractive to think about sucking CO2 out of the air or to think about, you know, let's just do all solar and wind, forget about cement and stuff. But if you can kind of take your initial reactions and your kind of intuition a little bit out of it and just say, you know, what are the biggest sources of emissions and what are the cheapest ways to combat them? You know, then you can be a bit more agnostic to that. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, growing up in Maine, I, I was really fortunate to have um, my mom and dad just living in a wooded area and being exposed to nature. And I think that's really what I trace all of this, all of my interest in this back to. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing is because I want to protect the natural world is really at the end of the day, what, what I think we need to do. Mm-hmm. You were also, and you made a reference to um, solar and how solar scaled up. And I've also been trying to learn about that. I read some of G. Garshaw's um, Climate Wealth book. And I think, were you in Nepal at one point also working on a solar project? Yeah. So I, um, after I spent some time doing impact investing, like basically investing in the kinds of companies that would uh, 
reduce emissions, I, I shifted gears and joined a small startup called Sun Farmer. And Sun Farmer provides off-grid solar solutions to people in Nepal. So it's you, people, some of the listeners may have heard of um, off-grid electric or MCOPA, these kind of large, um, they're called pay-as-you-go solar companies. So the idea is mm-hmm. it's in a country where a lot of people don't have access to grid electricity. I mean, people often forget that of the 7.5-ish, I don't know, 7.6 billion people in the world, I think like 1.1 of them, like around a billion of them, don't really have any access to grid electricity. So if they're going to have any electrical appliances, they're going to run them off a diesel generator perhaps, right? Or solar, that's the alternative. But they can't afford the upfront costs of those technologies. So the idea of pay-as-you-go solar is that you let them, it's just simple financing, right? It's just letting people pay in little bits over time as they're using the energy. Because their first system is going to be fairly small. It's not It's not something that runs, like I, I lived on a... Um, I lived on a canal boat last year, which is like one of these yes. long, uh, narrow boats in the UK. And, you know, you have solar panels on the roof of that and you can't run, you know, like a hairdryer or an iron off this stuff. You can run, you know, you can charge your laptop, you can run some lights, like the, the sort of, yeah, the intensity of power draw is lower. And that's the same in these countries like Nepal when you're, when you're um, working in off-grid areas. People are first going to get a solar system that lets them run a radio and some lights maybe. And and if you go a little bit bigger, maybe they can run a water pump. That was the main thing we worked on. Sun Farmer, the mission is and and remains basically bringing uh, clean energy to people in Nepal. And some of them are off grid and some of them are on grid, but regardless, it's, it's really more in a country like that. It's more about costs. You know, people, people just need energy as cheaply as they can get it. And so what's really remarkable is that solar is actually competing against the alternatives that are otherwise available. So people are choosing solar, not because necessarily they're concerned about the environment, but because it's the cheaper thing to do. And that's really, that's why we, why we're uh, trying to grow the business is basically just to um, bring that to more people and scale that up. Mm -hmm. So you are working also, I think you have a business plan or a notion that you're cooking up. Do you want to talk at all about true permanence or or just leave that for a wait and see. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I can't. I, I guess I can't give details yet, but I can just say that at Oxford we are working on incubating a vehicle that will allow people to support the permanent storage that I was talking about earlier. So mm-hmm. it's uh, basically a way for for as you said, the very important action of gathering up uh, people that are willing to say yes, that are willing to fund permanent storage of CO two. And then pairing that with the providers that can actually do that. But whereas I think the existing efforts that we've seen are are very focused on um, carbon removal, which of course includes a lot of nature-based solutions like soil carbon and planting trees, you know, actions that are really important, but uh, don't necessarily have that permanent storage attribute. We're trying to to fill that hole and, and talk about exclusively permanent storage. And this really ties to the academic work that uh, Miles Allen and myself and others are working on around a carbon take back obligation, which is basically, it's a policy concept that says, why don't we require the companies that are producing carbon, the oil and gas companies, to basically clean up their mess, right? To put CO2 back into the ground. It's a bit akin to, you know, people that sell tires, like they have to pay to deal with them at the end of life after they get thrown away when they're done from your car. So we have this idea that companies should have some degree of responsibility for the end use of their product. And our argument is that the oil and gas sector should be no different. 
Um, but of course, they can't store 100% of the CO2 that they're digging up from day one. That would be asking too much. So that's where this escalating idea comes in, where you start off requiring that they store 1% and then 2% and then 4%. And then over time, when you approach net zero, eventually these companies have to be storing 100%. So what we're really doing is we're taking that that sort of academic policy concept, which we're also working to uh, introduce into the public conscience and also uh, to policymakers. But at the same time, looking in the voluntary carbon market, can we get people to start supporting that vision on a voluntary basis? And that's where true permanence comes in. And that's the initiative that we're building now. Um, yeah, we don't have a website. We don't have uh, anything for the listeners to check out. But maybe once we do, I can I can send it to you. You can add it to the show notes. And I'd be happy to follow up as well with anyone who's interested in learning more. So the voluntary markets gives me hope because I think people do want to take climate action into their own hands. People want the voluntary markets are here. We're like raging for places to plug in. And I've gotten to know these, the community at Air Miners and there are consumer products and there are so many things that are being cooked up for the average person to be able to engage with. And that is what it's one of the only, I mean, we're in this incredible moment with coronavirus and we've got actual race riots in the United States right now. It is, it's, there's so much to feel desperate about that. I feel like oddly enough, um, climate action is where I feel the most hopeful because I see so much innovation and entrepreneurship and passion. Um, it's like, well, you know, we're not, all is not lost actually, because there's so many fired up, um, brilliant people. Absolutely. I think I should wrap us up here. I want I I close these episodes usually with a question about music. I love to ask people what kind of music they used to listen to in high school, mm-hmm. and what kind of music they yeah. listen to now. You know, I I listened to Def Leppard in high school because right. I grew up in Alaska and we were headbangers. Um <laughs> 80s hairband headbangers. But so yeah. but you're very musical um clearly if you're singing for President Obama and penguins. But so what, how have your, what did you listen to in high school and what are you listening wow. to now? Well, I, I think my first concert was either, oh, this is going to be embarrassing. It was either Weird Al Yankovic or, <laughs> um, actually, no, no, it was Green Day. He's still out there in the world, actually. Is, Weird it, Al is really a hero. Impressive. I love it. Yeah. Um, okay. No, yeah, Green Day. That's cool. Album. I listen to, you know, Weezer, Red Hot Chili Peppers, mm-hmm. that kind of alternative rock kind of stuff. And but mm-hmm. then I think over the years, I got more into folk music and yeah, even like traditional sort of acapella singing, like Appalachian folk music or mm. like medieval kind of ballads and stuff like that. That's really Amazing. interesting. And of course, I've become, a, I'm also a huge kind of choral music nerd. I, um, I actually didn't mention that another, I think another, this is kind of a tangent, but back to the carbon removal stuff and the, stuff. um, you know, I'm on the board of a choir at my alma mater and that's one thing that I'm pushing for there, which is to say, you know, this is a 150 year old choir that's been Mm -hmm. flying 80 students Mm -hmm. around every year, every summer to Mm -hmm. do amazing stuff, to go sing and Mm -hmm. volunteer, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But, you know, that's an, I think, the reason I bring it up is that we all have these groups that we have influence over or we have yes. uh, relationships with. And that's yes. kind of a, an opportunity we can take, which is to sort of merge our loves. You know, I, I love choral yes. music, I have this connection. I want to support this choir and this organization that I, uh, the Yale Glee Club, which I really got so much of and I love so much. 
you know, how can I help them with my sort of niche, bizarre knowledge on mm-hmm. permanent carbon storage to find a way mm-hmm. for them to mitigate their impacts and continue to fly around the world and, and bring beautiful music to people, but, uh, you know, get rid of that pesky carbon piece of it. Yeah. The merging of interests, I feel like is, that is where so much power lies. If you bring together, it's a huge opportunity. And I think you see the people segment their personal and professional lives, or they segment their hobbies, and it's hard to bring one into the other. I love that you brought that up. I mean, that's the crux of it all, if we can all figure out how to do that. I want to ask you to sing, but I'm afraid that that's really <laughs> oh, yeah. unfair. Like, um, maybe you could sing yeah. something for us, Eli. Okay. What do you got? I could sing a little excerpt. It's a song that I sang with the Whiffin' Poofs, actually, which is the group that um, brought me to Antarctica and kind of started my travel journey, which in a weird way is what got me into uh, finding ways to stop aviation emissions, which we can only really do with carbon removal and permanent carbon storage. So I guess- Amazing. Let's hear Let's hear from the Whiff and Poops. snippet of Down by the Sally Gardens from uh, Rafe Vaughn Williams. I think the words are by the poet Yates. Take it away. Down by the Sally Gardens My love and I did go She passed the Sally Gardens On little snow-white feet She bid me take life easy as the leaves grow on the tree. But I was young and foolish, with her did not agree. The crowd goes wild! The Eli, I wish you words. could... I should, re- I should re-sing that, because I... But anyway... Um, the, the I wish you could see my face. I that just made my day. What, if if you want to keep singing, <laughs> you want to sing something else. What else do you have? What we have to do right now is think of a song that involves travel because that can be more on theme. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking of um, oh, we could do like I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again. I don't know any more than that. <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome too. Eli, you are a hero. I am going to, I know you have had school. So I've been like, you've had finals or things, projects that felt to me <laughs> yeah, like indeed. I should not. Academic things are called. Yes. It's like, I shouldn't badger him, but I just, you are on my short list, man. Thank you so, so much. Well, thank you, Christina. It's been great chatting and I'm excited to keep yeah, keep thinking and keep planning and dreaming and figuring out how we can make tomorrow's air and all these other efforts, how to grow them really, yeah. Yeah.